Hello, this is Mel Weinstein, host of the Food Labels Revealed podcast. Welcome to the third episode. Yes, I have an interest in what's in my food. It's not just a curiosity. I want to know if there is something in the food that I eat that may be adversely affecting my health or the health of my family. If you want to know more about my background and interest in the subject of food ingredients, please tune in to the first episode. I'll just say here that I've had an interest in food science for almost 30 years. I am retired now, but earlier in my life I worked as a chemistry educator for 10 years, then as a research analytical chemist for a multinational food ingredients company, where I learned a great deal about the additives in, in commercial foods and where those materials come from. My goal here is to share with you what I've learned over many years in ways that I hope will be easy to follow, easy to understand, and whenever possible, as lighthearted as possible. This is a 100% guaranteed free podcast. It won't cost you a thing. I swear that I will never ask you for money. I have no sponsors or financial supporters. All the opinions expressed in the podcast are mine, and I promise that I won't promote any business, commercial product, or organization. I just want to keep this podcast authentic. All I ask of you is to give me your time, which I know is valuable, and if you're so inclined, drop me a note with questions or comments at this email address, foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. That's all one phrase, foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. Also, if you could leave a review at the iTunes store and at my YouTube channel, Search on Food Labels Revealed. I would greatly appreciate it. And also subscribe to the podcast or the YouTube channel. I don't know yet if I have any listeners out there, but if you happen to be one, I would greatly appreciate it if you would just take a moment and let out a loud yell so I can hear you. Today, I am going to investigate some snacks. But before I get to these food items, I want to talk about grass because it pertains to just about every commercial food that I will be investigating. Grass. No, I'm not talking about lawn care or your favorite recreational drug. Grass is a federally defined acronym, which stands for Generally Recognized as Safe. Generally Recognized as Safe. G-R-A-S. Grass. Now, this is a big subject but I'll try to break it down into niblets. Let's start with the year 1958. The Eisenhower administration decides that it's time for the government to start regulating chemicals used by food manufacturers. Up until that time, food manufacturers could put pretty much what they wanted in commercial foods without any kind of justification of their safety. So Eisenhower's people got a law passed called the Food Additives Amendment that requires food manufacturers to scientifically justify that the chemicals being used in their foods are safe for human consumption. But here's the problem. There were a shitload of chemicals used for hundreds of years, and it would have required a ton of work and money to test every one of them. So a compromise was struck. Pull up your chair, turn up your audio device, and listen carefully. The lawmakers decided that if a chemical had been used in the food supply up until 1958, with no one getting sick or keeling over dead, then that chemical would get, would get exempted from the law 
and automatically become grass. Well, that probably covered a few handfuls of chemicals, right? No. About 700 chemicals were grandfathered in. For example, chemicals like caffeine, caramel, and clay. Two of those I'll be talking about in this program. So right from the get-go, there were about 700 chemicals that didn't have to be scientifically scrutinized for their safety. What about new chemicals that the food industry comes up with as food additives? Well, the food manufacturer is tasked with the job of scientifically testing the new chemical for its safety in a particular food at a particular concentration. But here's the kicker. The manufacturer is in complete control of that confirmation process. The manufacturer can, can conduct the test itself using its own scientists or can hire a consulting firm to run the tests or the consulting firm can hire a testing lab. In any event, the test results are really in the hands of the food company. Then they file a petition with the FDA, including their test results, to get approval for use of the additives. Here's the second kicker. The FDA does not run its own tests to confirm the results. If the FDA scientists agree with the test results submitted by the food company, then the FDA announces its approval of the chemical additive and the conditions of its use in food. The public has 60 days to object to the FDA's decision, after which time food makers can use the new additive. And here's a third kicker. Intelligent comment on a petition is often difficult because neither the FDA nor the manufacturer is likely to allow a potential critic to examine the petition or the scientific data. Now, once a chemical makes it onto the grass list, can it get kicked off? Sure. If enough evidence emerges to challenge the safety of a chemical, then the FDA can delist it, and that's the end of its use in foods. A good example of that is the case of sodium cyclamate. This chemical is 50 times sweeter than table sugar. Its sweetness was accidentally discovered by a graduate student at the University of Illinois in 1937. The, the DuPont company purchased a patent for it and then eventually sold it to Abbott Laboratories. Abbott created a very popular tabletop, tabletop sachet containing sodium cyclamate as an alternative zero-calorie sweetener. In 1966... Some studies indicated that sodium cyclamate broke down in the body to form a toxic substance that increased the risk of bladder cancer. In 1969, the government removed the grass designation from sodium cyclamate and banned its use in general purpose foods. Okay, so let's summarize this grass stuff. Currently, there is somewhere around 10,000 chemicals listed as grass for use in foods. Yes. You heard me right, 10,000. It's tough to find out exactly how many there are, and it's even tougher to find an actual list of them. I challenge you to try. Even though the grass designation suggests that the food additive is safe, a consumer is wise to question the validity of that designation because, one, over 700 chemicals prior to the grass law of 1958 did not require testing, two, there is no government oversight on the scientific determination of the safety of a food additive since the government does not conduct its own tests. And three, it is difficult for citizens or other interested parties to get their hands on the scientific studies submitted by manufacturing companies requesting the FDA approval. 
and therefore can't challenge the results of the safety tests. Okay, on with the food investigations for today. Who doesn't like snacks? After all, many of us get a little hungry or submit to a craving between lunch and supper, right? I'm going to take a look at two very well-known afternoon snacks, chips and soda. Two of my favorites in my younger days were Pringles and Coca-Cola. Pringles were a wonderful invention introduced by Procter & Gamble in the late 1960s and then later sold to Kellogg's in 2012. With Pringles, you had to answer to all the, pro- all the problems associated with bagged potato chips, crumpled and broken chips, greasiness, and chips going stale. With Pringles, you had potato chips that were uniformly made, geometrically designed to fit nicely together in a canister, and they could be kept fresh with a plastic lid. Pringles were an excellent example of the combination of food science, mechanical engineering, and marketing to create a product that had universal appeal. Procter & Gamble did get into a little trouble calling their invention potato chips, since only about 42% of the chips were actually from potatoes. So the FDA prohibited the company from calling the Pringles, Pringles product potato chips. And I certainly remember how addictive Pringles were. It was really tough to open up the canister and just eat a few. Before I knew it, I had consumed the whole damn container. I can't remember the last time that happened, but I don't think I've eaten Pringles for over 10 years since I started watching more carefully what I put in my gut. Of course, Pringles are found in the snack aisle of the supermarket, which rivals only the cereal aisle for the massive numbers of products being sold in a single category. Just for Pringles, the choices are mind-boggling. In my local grocery, I could choose from 21 flavors and styles, including reduced fat, taco chicken, what, chili cheese, and French onion dip at a cost of $1.67 per can, or $1 if it's on sale. Pretty darn cheap. Let's take a look at the ingredients in just one of those flavors, namely the barbecue flavor. Here is the list. Dried potatoes, vegetable oil, choice of corn oil, cottonseed oil, soybean oil, sunflower oil. Then there's cornstarch, degerminated yellow corn flour, rice flour, maltodextrin, sugar, mono and diaglycerides, salt, tomato powder, monosodium glutamate, onion powder, citric acid, spice, garlic powder, yeast extract, hydrolyzed corn protein, malted barley flour, natural smoke flavor, malic acid, disodium inosinate, disodium guanolate, paprika extract for color, wheat dextrose, and finally, natural flavor. Discussing the 25 ingredients in this product would take a long time, so I will eliminate the the basic, common, and innocuous ones and just talk about those ingredients which you would not normally be adding to your home-cooked food. So I'm going to skip such things as salt, oil, etc., but I will still number the ingredients as if I was talking about all of them. Now, as this podcast unfolds, some ingredients will show up repeatedly. For items that I've already talked about in detail before, I'll refer you back to a previous episode and just touch on them lightly here. First up is the number one ingredient, dried potatoes. No surprise here, but Pringles, as stated earlier, is not a potato chip. So there are other ingredients that are used to make the dough that the chips are created from. Namely, 
the number two ingredient, cornstarch, number three, the germinated yellow corn flour, and number four, rice flour. For a description of the degerminated yellow corn flour, I'll refer you to episode number one. The sixth ingredient is maltodextrin. This ingredient showed up in episode number two. It's very common and is used as a filler as well as a light sweetener. There aren't any health problems associated with maltodextrin, but it is a factory-made chemical derived from starches, usually cornstarch. It's not a pure substance, but it's actually a complex mixture of dozens of related substances. The eighth ingredient is mono and diglycerides. These chemicals are derived from animal and plant fats and can be made from a variety of sources. They can act as dough conditioners, emulsifiers, which are agents for mixing water and oil, or stabilizers. This is a very common food additive and often listed in baked goods. It is estimated that every American consumes about a half a pound of this additive each year. Since mono and diglycerides are found in normal fats, they are considered harmless as an additive, but they are still chemicals that are manufactured in an industrial plant. The 11th ingredient is monosodium glutamate, or MSG. Given all the bad press around MSG, it's surprising that Kellogg's chooses to use it in their product. MSG is the main ingredient in the seasoning called Accent, and is often found in Chinese food. Its purpose is to boost savory flavor, or what is known as umami, in foods. This food additive has been around for a long time, and was one of the original grass chemicals grandfathered by the FDA. However, according to the book, Food Additives, A Shopper's Guide to What's Safe and What's Not, by Christine Hosa Farlow, MSG is a mutagen that is turns normal cells into cancer cells, causes obesity, may be addictive, causes diabetes, migraines, and headaches, adversely affects the brain, nervous system, and reproductive system, high blood pressure, autism, ADHD, Alzheimer's, retinal damage, blindness, and may cause allergic reactions. It's not recommended for pregnant or lactating mothers, infants, or small children. Wow, that's quite a rap sheet on a single ingredient. And the safety of this ingredient is controversial. I mean, many people say that there aren't any good scientific studies to support the problems attributed to it. But there are certainly many anecdotal reports by people around the world who have had adverse reactions to MSG. The bottom line here is that you should probably be cautious in consuming foods that have MSG. On a personal note, I've always loved Chinese food. When I worked full-time, my co-workers and I would order Chinese takeout once a week on Tuesdays. Periodically, I would get nasty, red postules under my arms, which would take weeks to heal. After I stopped working, and thereby stopped eating Chinese takeout on a regular basis, the skin reaction totally cleared up and never returned. I can't say that MSG was behind that allergic response, but something in the food was causing it. That taught me that food is not innocuous and can definitely cause health problems. Note to people sensitive to MSG. It can be found in other food ingredients that contain glutamate, such as hydrolyzed soy products, yeast extracts, whey or soy proteins, whey or soy isolates, and really any ingredient listed on the label as glutamate. The 13th ingredient is citric acid. I've talked about this chemical before and mentioned that it shows up in many packaged foods. Here we see it again. 
it was discussed in episode number two. The 14th ingredient is spice. What? That's not an ingredient. That's a generic term. For some bizarre reason, the FDA allows food companies to use this generic term instead of declaring what specific spices were used. It makes even less sense when Kellogg specifically mentions that garlic and onion powders are used in the Pringles product. I mean, what the hey here? The 16th ingredient is yeast extract. This ingredient was discussed in episode number 2 as autolyzed yeast extract. People sensitive to MSG should know that MSG is typically present in yeast extracts. The 17th ingredient is hydrolyzed corn protein. When you see this ingredient on the label, you should think of a flavoring sauce, like soy sauce. These sauces are usually made from corn or soy or wheat protein or a combination of them. When corn protein, also called gluten, is subjected to acid and hot temperatures, the protein breaks down into smaller protein fragments called peptides and amino acids. When that mixture is neutralized with, for example, sodium hydroxide, a mixture containing a high concentration of salt is formed. This sauce with the amino acids and salt serves as a flavoring enhancer for foods. This ingredient is also another source for MSG, which forms when plant proteins are hydrolyzed. This is the third source of MSG in the Pringle snack. The 18th ingredient is malted barley flour. I'm not sure why this material is in the Pringles, but it may serve as a dough conditioner, which doesn't really uh, add any flavor or color. Malted barley flour is, just, is also just called uh, malt. Barley grains are allowed to germinate to produce enzymes that convert the grain starches into sugars. The germinated grains are then ground into a flour. If you're old enough to remember malted milkshakes, malt was an important ingredient as well as in malted milk balls such as Whoppers. The 19th ingredient is natural smoke flavor, sometimes called liquid smoke. I have to admit that this stuff is one of my favorite flavors because it smells great and adds such a pungent taste to, to foods. But it may not be all that healthy. Fortunately, it is used in very small concentrations and doesn't show up in a lot of foods. Where does smoke flavoring come from? When selected woods are burned at high temperatures, the smoke is collected, condensed, filtered, and then mixed with water. That's it. But on the downside, there are compounds in the liquid smoke called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PAHs, that can cause cancer. The levels of these toxic substances will vary with the type of woods used and the temperature of the burning process. By the way, similar substances are formed during the grilling process when charcoal is the heat source. The 20th ingredient is malic acid. The word malic is derived from malum, which is Latin for apple. Malic acid is a natural product in apples contributing to the sour taste. However, the source of malic acid used in food formulas is not likely to be apples, but is more likely to come from a complex industrial chemical process. Malic acid in food serves as an acidulant to provide a little acidity to the product. The lower pH may serve uh, as a preservative. However, I really don't know what the main purpose of the malic acid is in the Pringles product as the 20th ingredient, uh, but it is there in very low concentration. 
The 21st ingredient is disodium anosinate, and the 22nd ingredient is disodium guanolate. These are related and are both flavor enhancers like MSG. Flavor enhancers have little taste of their own, but they accentuate the natural flavors of foods. These chemicals were first isolated in Japan in 1913 from fish. Food manufacturers often use them in combination with MSG because there is a synergistic effect among the three chemicals. The disodium anosinate and the disodium guanolate are more potent than MSG and more expensive, hence they are lower in the list of ingredients on the label. These additives are considered safe, but both of them do get converted to uric acid in the body, so people suffering from gout should avoid foods that have these chemicals in them. The 23rd ingredient is paprika extract. This reddish-orange additive is is in Pringles to contribute color. Like other plant extracts talked about in earlier episodes, The color component of paprika is isolated using a solvent extraction process, and then the extract is added into the commercial products. Uh, Kudos to Kellogg's here for not including artificial colors in Pringles, which could pose health hazards. The 24th ingredient is wheat dextrose. Dextrose is another name for glucose and was talked about in episode number 2. It's usually derived from the breakdown of cornstarch, but in this case, for some unknown reason, dextrose from wheat starch was used. The dextrose contributes a little sweetness to the product. The 25th ingredient is natural flavor. Here again is that ubiquitous and unspecified ingredient that could represent a zillion things. Our government does not require food companies to reveal what natural flavors are used, so the consumer, so to the consumer, this ingredient remains a mystery. According to the government, a natural flavor is a substance derived directly from a plant or animal or from the roasting, heating, or fermentation of said animal or plant. The source can be pretty much anything. Fruits, veggies, herbs, spices, leaves, roots, bark, meat, eggs, and dairy products among them. Since a company does not have to reveal the actual source of the natural flavor, any consumers who have allergies, for example, to dairy, or to consumers who are vegetarians, won't know that they are consuming food ingredients that they should be avoiding. As an aside, this Pringles product is supposed to be barbecued flavored. Most barbecue flavors have in them smoked paprika, garlic, onion, chili, black pepper, salt, and brown sugar. From that list, the Pringles product has four of those ingredients, the paprika, salt, garlic, and onion. Maybe the natural flavor has other ones, but it certainly makes me wonder why the company doesn't just simply list all the flavors. Is it really because the unrevealed flavors are part of a secret formula or secret recipe? All right, so that's it for the ingredients in the barbecued-flavored Pringles chips. How about the nutritional aspects? Of course, with Pringles being a snack, most people who eat these products don't have much of a concern about health, so I won't be spending much time on this subject. But let's start with calories. The Pringles can states that there are 5.96 ounces of chips in the can. At 150 calories per one ounce serving, if you consume the whole box at one sitting, a feat not difficult to perform, that total calorie intake would be 894 calories about one-third the recommended calories for the day. The carb content is 16 grams. 
on a percentage basis per ounce, which is 28 grams, the car percentage is 57%. Not a big surprise there, considering that the top ingredients are potatoes, corn, rice, and maltodextrin. The fat content is 9 grams, with 0 grams of trans fat reported, which is good. On a percentage basis per ounce, the fat percentage is 32%, which is pretty high and not so good. The sodium content is 140 milligrams per ounce, which isn't horrible, considering that there are four sources of sodium listed on the label. Of course, if you ate the whole can of chips, you would take in about 835 milligrams of sodium, which is close to a third of the recommended daily consumption. The sugars are low at one gram per serving, so that's a good thing. Let's take a break. It's joke time. Joke number one. What do you get when you mix beans and onions? What do you get when you mix beans and onions? The answer is tear gas. (laughs) Okay, joke number two. Why was the Buddhist kicked out of the ashram? Why was the Buddhist kicked out of the ashram? Well, he just wanted to go om. Ah, done with that. Well, let's wash down those Pringle chips with a fine-tasting carbonated beverage. For most of my life, Coca-Cola was my go-to soda. I must have gulped down several Olympic-sized pools of Coke. Once I got into nutrition and healthy food choices, I cut way back on my Coke consumption, but even up to three years ago, I was still drinking about a can a week. Now I'm down to zero. I'm not saying that Coke is the worst product you can consume, but it is certainly a can full of empty calories, and other than providing a satisfying and refreshing taste, it doesn't add any benefits to the human body. The ingredients in Coca-Cola are pretty basic, starting with carbonated water, then high fructose corn syrup, caramel color, phosphoric acid, natural flavors, and caffeine. So there are only six ingredients to deal with. The first ingredient is carbonated water, which most people know is just simply water that carbon dioxide gas has been added to under pressure. That's pretty innocuous. You could probably drink carbonated water all day long without ill effects, except for some undesirable gassiness. The second ingredient is high fructose corn syrup, or HFCS for short. This is the ingredient of the day. This is one of my favorite ingredients because I work for a company that manufactured HFCS, so I learned a whole lot about it. Of course, this ingredient is the sweetener in Coke. Back in the old days, say pre-1970s, cane sugar used to be the sweetener in Coke. And there are still some countries that, that use cane sugar. I think Mexico may be one of them. The big switch was made when food scientists and chemists came up with industrial processes to convert corn syrup into a sweetener that could rival the sweetness of cane sugar. It's a fairly complicated story, but I'll tell you a short and simple version here. Cane sugar is composed of sucrose, also known as table sugar. Now, sucrose 
can chemically be broken down into two components, dextrose at 50% and fructose at 50%, to give a mixture called invert sugar. Each of these is a sweetener on its own, and the mixture, invert sugar, is a sweetener. Now keep those numbers in mind. So how to make high fructose corn syrup. You start with field corn, steep the corn in a warm mixture of water and sulfur dioxide and other chemicals to separate the endosperm, which contains the starch, from the other parts of the kernel. The starch component is separated and cleaned up to produce white cornstarch. The cornstarch is mixed with water, acid, and enzymes, and at elevated temperatures and pressures, it gets broken down to dextrose. The dextrose solution gets passed through large columns that have embedded in them a special enzyme which can convert dextrose to fructose. When the conversion reaches a ratio of 55% fructose to 45% dextrose, the high fructose corn syrup has been made. That particular ratio of fructose to dextrose provides a sweetness equivalent to sucrose or cane sugar. It's interesting to note that a 50-50 mixture of dextrose and fructose is not enough to equal the sweetness of sucrose. Since fructose is a little sweeter than dextrose, a little bit more of it is needed in the sweetener mix to give an equivalent sweetness. With the invention of HFCS, companies like Coca-Cola were able to stop using cane sugar, and that switch provided many benefits to them. One, corn was a domestic commodity, unlike cane sugar, whose price fluctuated on the international market. Two, HFCS was a liquid and could be carried and easily delivered by tankers. Three, corn was a very dependable commodity in the U.S., and its price did not fluctuate wildly, and companies like Coca-Cola could rely on its supply. And four, Coca-Cola really didn't need to do much to alter the formulation of their product since the sweetness, sweetness levels between cane sugar and HFCS were very similar. HFCS is a great example of the application of chemistry to make a product which had never existed before but could rapidly replace a natural product in foods. And it's also a great example of the industrialization of food. The making of HFCS requires various chemical reactions, huge vats, pipes, pumps, filters, etc., that it can be really the poster child of a factory-made food ingredient. Since the 1970s, HFCS and its syrup relatives have taken over the food industry. Now it's hard to find commercial foods that don't have these ingredients in them. Start reading food labels, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Is it good, bad, or neutral for you? HFCS is probably not much worse than sugar, but some people say it has some detrimental properties, like increased weight gain, that may affect the rate of obesity in this country. But that's still a pretty controversial subject. The third ingredient is caramel color, which gives Coke its characteristic deep brown color. As a food ingredient, caramel color has been around a long time. It's manufactured by heating sugar in a caramelization process. Generally speaking, it is considered a safe ingredient. The fourth ingredient is phosphoric acid. That sounds pretty nasty, but phosphoric acid is a much weaker acid than, say, hydrochloric or sulfuric acids. In Coke, 
The phosphoric acid gives the beverage a sharper flavor and slows the growth of undesirable microorganisms, you know, like bacteria. The acidity of Coke is actually lower than that of orange juice or lemonade. Phosphoric acid is natural to the body, but problems could arise in heavy drinkers of Coke. Calcium may be leached from bones, leading to lower bone density over time. Also, excess phosphate in the body must be removed, causing the kidneys to work overtime. The fifth ingredient is natural flavors. We've been there, done that. Many of us have heard of Coca-Cola's secret cola flavor recipe that has never been released to the public. It's a closely held trade secret. Well, all of that secrecy is contained in that phrase, natural flavors. The sixth ingredient is caffeine. Now, caffeine adds a mildly, mildly bitter flavor, but that would be swamped uh, by all the sugar in Coca-Cola, so you wouldn't taste that. Oddly, the Coke flavor comes from cola beans, which naturally have caffeine in them. So what's the purpose of this extra caffeine in Coke? Well, the answer is pretty simple. People like a bit of stimulant in their beverages, hence the popularity of coffee and tea. The caffeine in Coke is present to provide a little kick. That keeps people coming back to buy it. Make sense? There is nothing illegal about adding caffeine to foods. It's a grass government-approved additive. Now, in defense of the Coca-Cola company, they don't spike Coke at the same levels that are found in coffee or tea. For example, in Starbucks coffee, there are 21.6 milligrams of caffeine per ounce. In Snapple lemon tea, there are 3.9 milligrams of caffeine per ounce. In Coke, there are 2.9 milligrams of caffeine per ounce. So you can see that the coffee and tea have more caffeine in them. But on the other hand, the caffeine in tea and coffee is natural to the plants that the beverages are made from. Whereas in Coke, you know, it's added in. What about the nutritional properties of Coke? Are you kidding me? That's a pretty silly question. People don't drink Coke or most other types of soda for any nutritional benefit. A 20-ounce bottle of Coke has 560 grams in it. The vast majority of the soda is a mixture of water and sugar. There are 65 grams of HFCS in that bottle, or 11.6%. That means that there is roughly 88% water in the bottle. And that's what your 50 cents or 75 cents or a dollar or a dollar 50 is mainly paying for, the water. Of course, water is pretty inexpensive as an ingredient, so the Coca-Cola company makes a pretty substantial profit on each can or bottle of soda that is sold. I don't know what the non-water ingredients cost, but I would bet you that they are probably less than 20 cents a bottle. So if a 20-ounce bottle of Coke is sold, let's say for a dollar, then there would be a profit of about 80 cents shared by the manufacturer bottler, the distributors, the merchandisers, and the grocery owners. Of course, you have to take out the cost of, you know, manufacturing the can, the marketing costs, etc. But that's still a pretty good margin. That's all I'm going to say about the nutritional properties of Coke, since it's mainly just flavored syrup water. So that's it for today's food ingredient investigation. A note of warning. Snacks from time to time can be very satisfying, but know that they don't benefit your health in most cases. 
they may even threaten your health. So don't make a habit of them. Here is a phrase to keep in mind. Eat with your brain. So long, food eaters, and remember this, if you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food from natural plants, not manufacturing plants. Goodbye.